you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. With us, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital, Dr. Dean Blumberg. Very good morning to you, Dr. Blumberg. Good morning, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, My first question is about the staffing up at UC Davis Medical. Um, So many hospitals have had staff members out with positive COVID tests or actual cases of COVID. Do you have a sense of how your staffing is doing there? Yeah, I think we've peaked in the number of staff that have been infected and that have been out of work and managed to keep things going um, normally in terms of um, how the, the number of procedures and other issues that are going on in the hospital. So, you know, luckily we're on the downside of this current surge. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting things more back to normal. How many weeks do you think we're, we're still going to be seeing Omicron hanging around? You know, the models suggest that we're going to get back to pre-surge levels, that is like before Thanksgiving, sometime uh, around the end of March. Okay, so we still got several more weeks. That seems like a longer decline than the ramp up. Yeah, it, it did. It did come up, come up very quickly in terms of the number of cases that we were seeing. Um, but then it does decrease slowly over time. And so that's what we're seeing. Um, um, and what we're seeing now, um, the models suggest, is that we're seeing um, less than half, probably about a third of the number of cases that we were seeing at the peak at the beginning of January. Um, but then there is this slow decline um, to get back to the levels that we were seeing um, uh, after the last surge from Delta. Um, we should get there by the end of February or early March. And how much of this is as a result of so many people getting uh, exposed to Omicron that the rise is just running out of people to infect? I think that is why we see these surges, is that we have so many people who are vulnerable to this new variant, and then we've had a really just an astronomical number of infections, and people do gain immunity with those infections. And and that's good because it limits further infection. However, that doesn't last forever. Eventually, that immunity wanes over time, um, and then people are going to be vulnerable again to additional infections. And so with previous coronavirus surges and other infections, 
usually we expect immunity to last um, around three or four months, but then we could get an, uh, another wave of infections. Imperial College London uh, does this REACT study, which is updated monthly. They've been doing it since May of 2020. It's funded by the UK government, and it looks at PCR test results across England. And they found that Omicron, not surprisingly, has almost completely replaced the Delta variant of COVID-19 in England. It also found more than two-thirds of people who tested positive in the study reported they either had suspected or confirmed COVID in the past. Uh, Does that high number uh, surprise you, Dr. Blumberg? I guess what that shows is that immunity from previous infection is doesn't last forever. And we knew that Omicron could evade immunity from previous strains or even immunization in terms of getting those breakthrough infections. The good news um, about the breakthrough infections is that people who are vaccinated continue to have a much decreased risk of um, hospitalizations, of severe disease, and uh, of death. And that's even in the wake of Omicron being around. In fact, CDC suggests with Omicron um, that people who are fully vaccinated have a 68 times decreased risk of dying from COVID, um, a 13 times decreased risk of testing positive, but 68 times decreased risk of dying. That's how well the vaccines um, are working, even with Omicron variant um, being prevalent. Now, despite your many positive attributes, I seem to recall you're a 49er fan, aren't you? (laughs) I have, you know, my my father got season tickets years ago when they were terrible um, before they turned it around and had the run of Super Bowls under Bill Walsh. And so I've really really enjoyed going to the games with him and and following the team. That's nice. And you're no bandwagon joiner, clearly. So um, anyway, uh, of course, huge game coming up at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood. I don't know if you've bought a ticket for that because you know we're trying to keep uh, Northern Californians out, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know if you're going. But K95 masks are going to be distributed to everybody in attendance, and people are going to be urged to keep those on throughout the games. As you know, at sporting events, this has been a tremendous challenge to get people to keep their masks on. Do you, do you think giving people masks might make a difference? Well, I think having them available is a great idea. And one of the issues with the more widespread availability of N95s and KN95s is this is our ticket to a more post-pandemic um, world in that people can make their own decisions in terms of risks because the N95s and KN95s protect so well, they provide that 95% protection that then you can start moving away from these mandates that everybody has to wear a mask because the wearer of the mask is so well protected um, as long as they don't have facial hair and they have a good fit. Um, that then if their neighbor is not wearing a mask, um, then that's their neighbor's decision, but it doesn't affect the wearer of the mask. So I, I think that's great. And I think that's that's what we're moving towards is that we're going to have less mandates, both for vaccines as well as, as mask wearing. People can make their own decisions. We're talking with UC Davis Children's Hospital Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, Dr. Dean Blumberg. And he's taking your questions about COVID. 19. Maria in Bellflower says for infants three to six months whose mothers were not vaccinated while pregnant, how does contracting COVID affect them? 
Yeah, so what we're seeing in these youngest children is when they get COVID, they generally have less severe disease. They often have manifestations of other common respiratory viral infections like respiratory syncytial virus or RSV, adenovirus or um, influenza. So most of these infections are mild. They may have a fever. And occasionally we do see the rare kid who does have a serious infection. I've seen several children myself who've had inflammation of their heart, myocarditis, with um, with COVID infection at that age. So it can it can be serious, it can result in, in hospitalization, but most of those infections are mild. And fortunately, kids younger than six months of age, they're relatively cocooned. Um, they're not out and about much. And so we do expect them to be relatively protected and have decreased exposure until they're eligible ultimately for, for vaccination, which we expect soon for six months of age and older. And how transmissible is it from you know, younger ones to adults? It appears to be much less transmissible from children to adults compared to the other way around. Um, In fact, 90% of household outbreaks are from the adults bringing it into the house and transmitting it to children rather than the other way around. Do you think that's because kids are lower to the ground or to what do you attribute that? Um, That's been hypothesized as it might be related to to the height, but I think it's probably more related to the ACE2 receptors that the spike protein binds to, is younger children have a much lower concentration of those ACE2 receptors, and so I think there's less opportunities for the virus to to infect and latch on to, to the child. Janet in Pasadena asks, is it likely COVID will mutate to be transmissible in other ways, like how the beginning of the pandemic, there was concern that one of the primary forms of transmission was through surface contact. Uh, you know, I, I would never say never. We've been surprised so many times about this virus, but it is a, a respiratory virus. I mean, it's a coronavirus, and we know that coronaviruses are traditionally they're they're transmitted via the respiratory route. So I do expect that part of the COVID story to remain the same. It's primarily going to be a respiratory viral disease. Jeff in Mid-City, Los Angeles, says, I know the focus has been on improved masks to mitigate the spread of COVID, but what about our eyes? Is there a decreased risk of contracting COVID through your eyes with the Omicron variant? Yeah, I'm not aware of any Omicron-specific data, but we do have data from from um, previous um, strains that suggest that eye protection does decrease risk of transmission, that the eye shields or goggles that the healthcare providers wear provide about a 20% decreased risk of transmission. And in fact, there were early studies from China that suggested people who wear glasses have decreased risk of infection. And we have Henry in Santa Monica. How long should we anticipate these mask requirements stay in effect, given the numbers of us that are vaxxed and boosted? I'm especially wondering how much longer kids will have to wear them. Yeah, I, I think there's there's two factors to take into play. One is to get rid of this, um, to get over this Omicron surge, um, as well as having summer um, uh, just having the, having summer come along because we know that coronaviruses traditionally are a winter respiratory virus. And so we had hoped last summer that we would have decreased transmission. That didn't occur because of the Delta variant, um, which was more transmissible than previous strains. But I, I'm targeting around summer. 
The other factor is the availability of the N95s and KN95s so that we don't have to have the mandates that people can make their own decisions and protect themselves. And so it, it'll matter less what other people choose to do if you are risk averse and you choose to wear an N95 in public, then if somebody else chooses not to be vaccinated um, and not to um, wear a mask, that affects them primarily and not you so that we can all make our, our own decisions. We have a question from Josh in West L.A. who asks, why isn't there greater concern about long COVID for children? With schools open, children are testing positive at very alarming rates. Yeah, I think that is a concern. And I, I, I have questions about that every day in my practice because we get referrals for children with long COVID, with concerns for long COVID, and they do get long COVID. Fortunately for children, they get it at about half the rate that adults do. So it's not quite as common as in adults, but it's another reason for children to be vaccinated and for parents to have their children vaccinated because if they don't get COVID, then they won't, they have a decreased risk of getting long COVID. And I'm wondering about, you know, why we don't see more kids, at least at this point with long COVID, because they have such strong immune systems. You know, there's such a thing as childhood allergies where uh, immune system can work against kids. I I certainly had that when I was a kid, but outgrew it, fortunately. Um, So, I would think that some of this sort of immune system over-response, if that is is uh, the major issue with long COVID, that we would see more of that in kids. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's com- it's complicated. So it's not just an over-response, but it's a different response that mm-hmm. likely results in in long COVID. So there is some um, research that's just coming out that suggests certain antibodies that develop do re- are, are a risk factor for um, long COVID, as well as the concentration of virus um, in the bloodstream during acute infection. Um, and then there's underlying factors too. So it's, it's complicated and we're just, we're just learning what the risk factors really are. Travis in Santa Monica emailed us, why is the possibility of Omicron mutating into a more harmful variant so much more of a concern than any common virus mutating into a more harmful variant? I think the issue is that we just don't have that much experience with um, with COVID. And so any kind of mutation, we're still learning so much about it and we still don't have a lot of experience. So, for example, with influenza, you know, most people by the time they're 10 or 15 years old, they've been either immunized several times or they've been um, infected several times with different strains of influenza. And therefore, they develop sort of a broad repertoire of immunity to different strains. Their immune system has a lot of experience. Right now, most people have had maybe one, maybe two infections with COVID, or they've been immunized against one strain. And they, we just don't have that broad repertoire of immunity um, against these different strains. So even these smaller different variants that develop can be a significant risk for breakthrough infection and, and can lead to these surges. And how does just the the huge numbers, particularly with Omicron, that we're dealing with, that do the larger numbers in and of themselves increase the likelihood of uh, just more variants and and in their sort of a numbers game that you could get one that's that's more lethal. 
Yeah, absolutely. The more transmission that's occurring, the more, the higher the risk of a variant occurring, because every time the virus multiplies, it's an opportunity for a mutation to develop. And that mutation may result in a less fit virus that just dies out and we don't hear more about it. Or it could result in a virus that causes um, more severe disease or is more transmissible compared to previous strains. And so that's why it's important, not only for us to be protected ourselves individually, um, but we can all decrease our risk of future variant development by making sure that the vast majority of the world population is immunized. What conditions make people most vulnerable to COVID-19? You know, there's several different things um, in terms of having more severe disease. The conditions that lead to increased risk of infection, we know, is being unimmunized or not wearing a mask and having um, a lot of different interactions. So being a frontline worker. Um, but then when they do get infected, in terms of getting more severe disease, we know that age is a factor, being over 65 years of age. And it's not just over 65. You know, being over 75 is a more of a risk factor than being over 65. And then also anybody who has a weakened immune system. So people who are getting actively treated for a solid tumor or um, a, a, blood, a blood tumor like leukemia, somebody who's had a solid organ transplant, who's taking immunosuppressive therapy, um, anybody with a weakened immune system like a primary immune deficiency, um, anybody with advanced HIV or active treatment with immunosuppressive drugs like high doses of steroids, those are all going to be risk factors for more severe disease and higher risk for ending up in the hospital and dying from COVID. Yesterday, the journal Cell published uh, a study looking at four factors that uh, were found that could be identified early in a person's coronavirus in, in infection that seemed to correlate with the risk of having lasting symptoms weeks later or long COVID. Um, uh, and uh, the research, uh, just looking for where that was, was conducted, maybe you know, it was uh, published again in uh, the journal Cell. But it found one of the things was the level of coronavirus RNA in the blood in, early in the infection. So in other words, viral load early on. Another, the presence of certain autoantibodies, antibodies that mistakenly attack tissues in the body, similar to what happens with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. A third factor, the reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus. So people often, when they're young, will get Epstein-Barr, then it goes dormant. The idea is that this can reactivate that and and be long COVID. The final factor is having type 2 diabetes. Um, This actually comes from the Institute for Systems Biology, which is in Seattle. It's a nonprofit biomedical research organization. What do you think of those findings? You know, it's interesting, and I'm glad that I think it's a really good start to try to figure out what causes those persistent symptoms. But many of them, you know, it's suggestive that maybe they need bigger numbers to confirm these findings, and many of them may not actually be associated, but more uh, more consequences of getting long COVID. So, for example, the reactivation of EBV occurs very commonly in people, and many things can trigger that, including stress, for example. 
Um, so finding that reactivation may be a nonspecific finding um, related to getting long COVID and may not be causative of long COVID. And the type 2 diabetes, you know, that's, that's relatively common. So maybe they found that as a risk factor, but maybe there's other underlying conditions that they just didn't have big enough numbers to figure out that other underlying conditions are risk factors also. So I, I'd love to see this kind of work. I think it's a great start. Um, we'd like to be able to explain why some people get long COVID and others make full recoveries relatively quickly. Um, and so I think it really adds to our knowledge. Well, and, and you know, as we've talked about long COVID on the program previously, I think there's, there's hope that as we better understand what's happening with long COVID, it may help explain some other uh, conditions that people have had, illnesses before COVID-19 um, that we still are having a difficult time understanding, chronic fatigue and, and you know, other um, autoimmune kinds of things that have been very difficult to get our arms around. Yeah, absolutely. The chronic fatigue syndrome has been a mystery for years. We are learning more about what's causing it. We have we are learning about better treatments for it. And similarly with things like fibromyalgia. Um, and so these these conditions, you know, these conditions which in the past some people had some some people in healthcare had dismissed as not being real. I mean, these are real conditions that affect people's lives, and there are diagnostic criteria for them, and we do have specific treatments. But we'd love to learn more about the underlying pathogenesis so that we can get even better treatments and even prevent them. It's got to be so hard when you're when you're sick and every part of your life is affected by it, and 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 people question whether it's real, whether it's um, whether what you're dealing with is, is is a physical illness. What's been dubbed stealth Omicron, a subvariant, has been found uh, in a Santa Clara County patient in the Bay Area. Dr. Blumberg, what can you tell us about uh, this sub lineage of Omicron? You know, we're just starting to get some information about this. This is B, this is labeled BA.2, and that's versus the original Omicron variant, BA.1. Um, it shares 32 mutations with BA.1, but it does have 28 unique mutations that aren't present in the original strain. And it's been detected in several countries where it's come on pretty fast in terms of the proportion of circulating strains. So it's uh, causing about half the strains um, that are circulating now in Denmark and, and Norway. There's been a handful of cases reported um, in the U.S., including in California, as you mentioned. And we still have questions about the, does it have advantages in terms of transmissibility? Does it um, cause more severe disease? Does it cause breakthrough infection? And does it have the ability to evade previous infection? So we've, we've got, we've, we still have a lot of questions about it. And, and there have been a number of cases, I guess, in India. And India has a pretty good um, tracking program, don't they? And, and uh, it put a lot of resources into this. So I wonder if they might have some answers for us. Yeah, India and, and South Africa, of course, where Omicron was first detected, um, they do have um, uh, they do sequence a relatively high proportion of the um, circulating strains. You know what they found the early data from Denmark and India is that there um, doesn't appear to be a change in terms of the severity of disease with these two different strains of Omicron, but. The growth in the UK as well as Denmark does suggest that it may be more transmissible. So it's something that we'll still have to watch very closely. 
Dr. Blumberg, one question we get a lot from listeners is for people who were vaccinated and then got COVID. When should they get boosted? And I I know that's not necessarily an easy answer, but what should people be factoring into that decision? Yeah, so the important thing to know is that reinfection is rare within 90 days of infection. So you've got some wiggle room. You don't want to be vaccinated while you're acutely ill. And obviously you don't want to, you, you want to quarantine, you want to be isolated when you're potentially infectious. So the CDC um, recommendations on that is that people can get vaccinated as soon as they are clinically improving and they're no longer considered infectious, but there's no rush and because there's there's little risk of reinfection within 90 days. So as soon as they're feeling better and they're not infectious, they can go ahead and get vaccinated. In California, healthcare workers um, need to get their booster by February 1st. Um, and so I've gotten that question from a lot of healthcare workers who've had recent um, Omicron infections. And really, as soon as they're as soon as they're recovered, um, they can get vaccinated and and make sure that they meet those requirements. I wonder though if it would be more ideal to wait toward later in that three month month window if you're not staring at a you know booster mandate, because you'd have that natural protection for up to three months, and then you sort of start the clock again with your booster. Yeah, that would be one strategy, although, you know, reinfection is rare, but it does occur. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I don't I, I guess I'm not trying to fine tune it too much yeah, with that yeah. because there's so much that's unknown. Well, and as I've talked about before, a friend who uh, fully vaccinated and boosted got COVID a month apart, two different bouts of it, presumably first with Delta and the second one, presumably with Omicron. So, you know, we certainly certainly know that that happens. What are your thoughts about the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing, where, you know, China has this zero COVID policy and we're seeing athletes testing positive who will not be able to compete in the Winter Games in Beijing? Um, Your thoughts? about what we might see there. Yeah, I have a lot of concerns about that. You know, that zero COVID policy is great in theory, but what it results in is that people, you know, the vast majority of the population doesn't have immunity from previous infection um, because of that policy. And in addition, the vaccines that are being used in China appear to be less effective than vaccines that we're using here in the U.S. So even vaccinated individuals are going to be um, have have be at increased risk for breakthrough infections. Then you bring people in from all over the world. It, it, it just seems like unless there's a bigger push to vaccinate with with better vaccines, it, it seems like that's ripe for introducing um, cases into a population that's going to be relatively susceptible to infection and could result in widespread transmission. Jack in Glendale says, I know there's a lot of stuff in the news about people who are vaccinated, who get the virus and and spread it. But what about people who are vaccinated and aren't getting it? Uh, How are the vaccines holding up at preventing people from getting COVID? Yeah, they're they're still working very well in terms of preventing infection. Although you can get the breakthrough infection with with Omicron, there's still some partial protection by being fully vaccinated and boosted. So um, people who are are unvaccinated um, have more than 10 times increased risk of getting infection compared to those who are fully vaccinated and, and boosted and a much higher risk of ending up in the hospital and getting severe disease. So the vaccines continue to hold up well. 
Oren in Claremont, we're almost out of time, but emailed us. Um, he tested positive for COVID, had uh, bad cold-like symptoms, still has congestion and, and aches. He tested positive again yesterday. This is 11 days in. Does that mean he's still contagious? You know, it, it it depends on the test. If he's clinically improving and is afebrile without fever-reducing medication, then he's no longer con- considered contagious as long as he's not um, immunocompromised. The PCR testing, that can remain positive for weeks to months afterwards, and that doesn't necessarily correlate with being infectious to others. The antigen tests are better in terms of determining risk of, of transmission. All right. Dr. Blumberg, wonderful to have you with us, and uh, all the best for a great game on Sunday between the Rams and 49ers. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.